Welcome to Let's Talk Literature, a podcast about novels, poetry, and authors. I'm your host, Thomas Worthington. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Natalie Neal, an English professor at York University, about Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So just to warn you, there will be spoilers in this episode, so if you have not yet read the novel, I highly encourage you to do so before listening to this episode. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Professor Natalie Neal. Professor Natalie Neal, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Thomas. Uh, It's lovely to be uh, sitting down with you. How are you doing? I'm great. Great. How are you? I'm great. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Before we dive into Jane Austen, because that's the topic of discussion for today, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I really think it's interesting hearing uh, people's career paths just in general. And I think there might be people out there that might also be interested in your career path and uh, why you I guess, chose to be a professor and all that. So thanks for asking. Yeah, well, hmm. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm an assistant prof in the English department at York. And well, I think probably every prof would say this, but I've always loved reading. Uh, so maybe it starts there and narratives in various forms actually my undergraduate degrees are in English and film studies Uh, so and uh, you know I did my master's degree in film studies so it really could have gone either way I could have ended up as a professor of film which would have been cool and I I love um, I teach a course at York uh, filming literature where we we read a literary work and then we watch the film adaptation and discuss you know, the, uh, uh, the relationship between literature and film, that's a big research interest of mine still. And I'm interested generally in how stories are translated and reimagined from one medium to another, and also literary reimaginings and responses to prior works of lit. Um, so, you know, another course that I teach at York is intertextualities, where, so for example, we probably took that course I did back take in the that day. Course, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, for example, we'll look at Mary Shelley's. Frankenstein and the way it rewrites the myth of Prometheus. And we look at George Bernard Shaw and how he in his play Pygmalion adapts the Ovidian myth about the sculptor and his uh, sculpture who comes to life. Um, so I love that that course too. But as an undergrad, I, f- I fell in love with romantic literature, um, especially Gothic novels, the Gothic novels of the period. And during my PhD, it was a novel by Jane Austen. It was uh, her parody, Northanger Abbey, that sparked my interest in Gothic parodies. And that ended up being the focus of my dissertation, and it remains one of my research interests today. And in particular, I'm interested in uh, female authorship in the Romantic period and the way that parodies of the popular Gothic novels of Jane Austen's day often reflect uh, the vigorous and acrimonious debates of the period about women's rights and female education and female authorship. So it's been a long and circuitous route. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in the end, all my various interests sort of come together in one way or the other so it's a great life and it's a great it's a great job (laughs) that's amazing yeah I really fell in love with the romantic period as well I don't know why there's something so yeah something so beautiful what is it about it for you that Um, speaks to you I'm not really sure Mm. the I I just feel what the romantics feel so deeply I mean they're like kind of resistance to the resistance Mm. to to form I guess to like formal restraints not only just in the writing but also you know, the industrial revolution that was going on that was, yes. you know, changing society and the resistance to that. So yeah, 
with their nature poetry and their celebration mm -hmm. of the freedom of the individual and self-expression. I agree. I, that's a big yeah. reason why they appeal to me too. Mm -hmm. And people might these days see uh, the romantic movement as sort of restrained, maybe, or even uh, somewhat conservative. But what they were doing was like very uh, revolutionary, I guess, and it was opposing everything that was yeah. happening at, at the time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. But intertextuality, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people who haven't encountered that term before. It's a very yeah. interesting uh, concept. Would you mind? Like explain just a little bit. Yeah, um, intertextuality. It basically has to do with the interconnected relationships among works of literature, as you know well. Um, but the mm -hmm. way that works of literature are kind of in conversation with each other, and no, no, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> there, there, no work of literature exists in a vacuum. Nothing is original. Um, although the Romantics prized originality as a, you know, but in fact, um, even the most original novel like Frankenstein isn't really, you know, it's always building on previous stories and, and woven through its texture, our, our previous tales like the Faust tale or the Promethean myth. Or, um, so I think that aspect of literature really interests me, the way that the more you read, the more deeply you're going to understand any one given text because of deliberate and also unintentional references that the authors are making, you know, gestures to outside the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's really interesting while you read more that like, you read a, a paragraph and then you can connect that to something you've read before. And it's like yes. kind of the dots are, are connecting together. And that's I something that. I guess we're going to be speaking to today because mm -hmm. uh, Jane Austen's work is heavily influenced by everything that's going on around her, even Absolutely. her writing, like the things yeah. she's reading at the time as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. And I mean, Jane Austen is, I've always rather understood her as her style as a writer, right? She's such an important social commentator. And, you know, so innovative in her approach to narration and so on. Um, and I understand her work as being very much a response to those popular Gothic novels that we were just talking about. So in the Romantic period, the most popular genre uh, was the Gothic and, you know, writers like Matthew Lewis and Anne Radcliffe and, and their, um, you know, these sensational, um, supernatural, wild, sprawling tales. And then you have Jane Austen who read widely you know, and certainly would have read many Gothic novels and enjoyed the Gothic, I think she's defining her approach to literature against the, that kind of popular fiction, right? So where, so you can't really understand her work without kind of reading other more popular, um, almost like the pulp fictions <laughs> of her period, mm -hmm. right? So whereas the Gothic novels are sprawling and there are so many characters, many are extraneous <laughs> to the plot, unnecessary, mm -hmm. um, not realistic at all. Um, Jane Austen instead, greater narrative economy. Um, her characters are fewer, um, but they're all key to the story. Nothing extraneous. And then deeply invested in realism, like, you know, the social observation and capturing the private domestic world. So her stories don't have her characters traveling to foreign places and going to Gothic castles and seeing ghosts, but, you know, sitting in parlor rooms, having conversations, um, you know, interactions within the family, with neighbors. Um, but it's so interesting because of the social observation and satire. So yeah, I think we understand her work better if we see her as sort of perfecting in her eyes the art of novel writing. What should a novel look like? And for her, it's this more realistic kind of path 
rather than the kind of wild, entertaining Gothic tales <laughs> that were the bestsellers of her day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, being surrounded by so much uh, fantastical literature, it's interesting that she chose to write about realism, yeah. about just everyday life. Yeah, and I mean, again, in terms of intertextuality, she was certainly, there were precedents. I mean, she was very influenced by one of her favorite writers, Fanny Burney, Frances Burney, um, who was also a satirist and, and uh, wrote more on the realist sort of end of things. So she wasn't the first, of course, but the joy of reading a Jane Austen novel is not only a window into that, into 200 years ago for people of her social class, you know, sort of genteel lives, um, a window into the private lives, um, but also, you know, just getting an, a, a sense of the attitudes of the period. Um, and that's so possible because of she was a social documentarian in a way, like she is social observation, the realism uh, makes her work so interesting. Not real. <laughs> There's a lot of romance elements in her works, um, but a lot of realism. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just thinking that, well, going along with the same track that what you're saying, the things that are going around surrounding women's rights at the mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. seems like a big, it seems to be playing in the background of her novels. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a central theme. Um, her stories are, well, they're feminocentric, right? So there's, I mean, there are obviously important male characters, but the, her heroines are female. She has female protagonists um, who, and the stories are focalized through their point of view. Um, and the stories, all of her six novels, centrally concerned with themes of money. And so again, getting back to those social realities for women, um, themes of women's economic dependence in the day. You know, the reason to get to Pride and Prejudice, the reason that the comical Mrs. Bennett, who's such a ridiculous, fun character, um, is so obsessed with marrying off her daughters is because, of course, their father's estate has been entailed away from the female line. It's going to go to the equally ridiculous cousin, Mr. Collins. So, you know, but so there's a reason why Mrs. Collins is, or pardon me, Mrs. Bennett is that way. But again, part of the fun of Pride and Prejudice is the mix of realism. So you have the economic realities of the marriage market. Lizzie, Jane, all the girls have to marry, you know, to support themselves. But it is very fortunate indeed that Elizabeth happens to fall in love with Darcy because he's so fabulously wealthy. So you yeah. have this sort of, you know, um, so there's a little bit of a fairy tale aspect to that as well. So that's, that's pretty interesting, I think. But yeah, Austin, very concerned with, um, and some scholars suggest that she is almost proto-feminist in her sort of preoccupation with uh, women's uh, lack of rights, women's economic dependence, and so on. So that aspect of her books, that's really interesting too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of modern reader, readers might get mistaken when reading this and thinking that oh, this is all very genteel and very conservative, but yeah. even in just the way that she writes, like the kind of, I don't know, biting satire mm -hmm. that kind of encompasses the way she writes yeah. is the complete opposite of conservative. I agree. She is, I, this is, pro, I mean, there's so many reasons why I love Jane Austen so much. And uh, I mean, one, just her skill as a sentence level writer, um, right? The beautiful long sentences and the complicated punctuation, but it's all perfect and um, perfectly constructed. And then on the macro level, the, the construction of the plots, which are so tight and so compelling, um, but it's also the satire, right? It's just the ironic stance of the manner of narration and her ironic narrators. We as readers can always relate to the characters, characters like Lizzie, like Darcy, and we like them but we always read between the lines of everything they say. <laughs> and we're, we're sort of 
made to do that. And so we understand long before Lizzie does that she's misjudged Darcy, of course. And we as readers understand that she feels far more deeply for him than even she realizes. So there's that dramatic irony. Um, and even characters we like and root for, like Jane and Lizzie, have their foibles. So no character escapes the author's satiric eye. And then it gets back to the idea of money and social realities, because the satire is a broader social satire. Like, um, we have many social targets, class divisions. Think of satire of the upper classes in Pride and Prejudice, like uh, figures like Lady Catherine de Bourgh or, or Miss Bingley, or satire, satire of the marriage market, or satire on uh, attitudes toward women in the day. You know, I'm thinking of Mr. C and she'll have these characters who ventriloquize, who sort of are used to mock attitudes in the period. Like Collins is great for that. So when, when Lydia runs away with Wickham, like kind of elopes with him, careless of her family's reputation, her own reputation, and takes this, you know, risky step and runs away. It's shocking and scandalous. And uh, Collins says, uh, writes to Mr. Bennett, I think it's in a letter and says like, it's better if she had died. Do you remember that? Like, it'd be better if she had died than, <laughs> than do this. And it's such a, it really captures this very strong attitude in the period, you know, the importance of feminine virtue, right? It's better that a, that a woman should die than that she should disgrace her family by being unvirtuous and run away with a man. So pretty interesting. So there's all sorts of social commentary hidden um, just in lines of dialogue like that, mm -hmm. which I love. Yeah. And many that can be just missed by by modern readers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, the ridiculous upper class characters. I mean, Jane Austen came from a comfortable family. Her father was, was wealthy um, enough. He was a rector, an Anglican rector, but his, his family was wealthy enough from trade. But um, the, the way that she makes fun and ridicules the upper classes, like Lady Catherine de Bourgh, when, um, you know, her snobbish classist ideas you know, when, um, when she uh, talks to Lizzie about marrying Darcy, she asks, are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted, you know? <laughs> so just uh, Austin is, is definitely uh, not conservative in that sense. You know, she's really taking a stab at the, at the upper classes in her day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, well, the main message I gather from the novel is that even though all of the, the entire plot is focused around wealth and it surrounds wealth. And I mean, the only reason the, the story exists is because they have to find husbands or otherwise yeah. they become homeless. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But mm -hmm. ultimately the thing is like that character triumphs just above uh, sheer wealth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing, maybe it's because they're so capacious and they accommodate so many interpretations. That's why we're still reading Austin. But I think there's so many themes and messages and ideas we can extract. I think that's right. Um, I think for me, the main message or the main, one of the main themes of Pride and Prejudice 2 is about, well, it's a coming of age story in addition to being a courtship narrative. And for Austin, coming of age means, for Lizzie, coming of age means being able to develop rational judgment and being able to get, like the, the original title of the novel, I'm sure you know, was First Impressions. Mm -hmm. um, and she renamed, Austin renamed it later Pride and Prejudice. And it, so it's really about getting past your biases, your prejudices, and uh, learning to get past those first snap judgments. 
and understand the world from a more informed and critical perspective. And that's exactly what Lizzie comes to do with Darcy because she forms this <laughs> initially very unfavorable impression of him, his snobbishness, his you know, pride and so on. And she realizes that she was just judging him very superficially once she got to know him better and understood the, him and the world better, her perspective becomes broader. And I think that's right now anyway, I guess every time I come back to the book, I get something different about it. But I think it really is a book about reading, you know, reading the world around you, reading other people and doing that with from an informed place instead of from a place of prejudgment. And that's one thing I think is really powerful about the book. Uh, that's what we need in our in the 21st century, right? More understanding of each other, <laughs> mm-hmm. more willingness to like cool our jets and think about where someone else is coming from instead of uh, having a snap, you know, us and them snap judgments. So yeah, I think there's there's that's one aspect of the book certainly that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very wise. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and on the opposite end of that, it's that Wickham he comes off as such a amazing guy at first like yes. the first impression of him is that this guy is you know uh he's everyone anyone wants to be yeah and he yeah, ends that's up right. being so affable <laughs> so <laughs> handsome yeah yeah looks can be deceiving right mm-hmm. so yeah your examination of mr darcy is over i presume said miss bingley and pray what is the result i am perfectly convinced by it that mr darcy has no defect he owns it himself without disguise No, said Darcy, I have made no such pretension. I have faults enough, but they are not, I hope, of understanding. My temper I dare not vouch for. It is, I believe, too little yielding, certainly too little for the convenience of the world. I cannot forget the follies and vices of others so soon as I ought, nor their offenses against myself. My feelings are not puffed about with every attempt to move them. My temper would perhaps be called resentful, My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. That is a failing indeed, cried Elizabeth. Implacable resentment is a shade in a character. But you have chosen your fault well. I really cannot laugh at it. You are safe from me. Darcy then says, There is, I believe, in every disposition a tendency to some particular evil, a natural defect which not even the best education can overcome. And your defect is to hate everybody, said Elizabeth. And yours, he replied with a smile, is willfully to misunderstand them. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. So this novel is like, it could potentially be seen as a conservative or whatever from uh, modern readers, but Mm -hmm. this novel actually wasn't very popular when it first came out, right? Yeah. And it also didn't conform to the Victorian sensibilities Mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it well, I mean, it's interesting because uh, Jane Austen was celebrated in her day. Um, you know, she she earned for this book uh, this, and Pride and Prejudice was the second book she published, and for the manuscript she got, I believe, about one hundred and forty pounds which was really good. Like, I mean, it's not, there was another, um, uh, the, probably the most popular author in this day was Anne Radcliffe. And I think she got about 500 pounds for the manuscript of Miss, her Gothic novel, Mysteries of Udolpho. But nonetheless, 140 pounds um, was quite a lot. Um, and it would have allowed for some independence for Jane Austen. And so her books were valued. Uh, they were well-reviewed. Um, but she certainly didn't have sort of level of fame in her lifetime 
that she does now. That doesn't happen until, you know, after her death through the 19th century um, into the 20th century, when she really became like the culture figure that she is today, right? All the adaptations, all the additions, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, she's such a beloved author. Um, But in her day, she was respected um, for sure. Um, The Prince Regent uh, was a fan, um, had all of her books and wrote to uh, her publisher, giving her permission to dedicate Emma to him. So that was quite an honor. Um, So, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, the other thing too is, I know this is something you're interested in, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the status of female writers in this period, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of it too. Um, She, um, she, Jane Austen was writing in a time when there was a lot of hostility towards female authors, and um, so I, th- I think maybe in some ways her very approach to novel writing is a way to almost negotiate the concerns of male critics, right? Like this idea that writing novels is not a very respectable profession for a woman. Um, so she tends to write novels that on the surface are, you know, moral tales. <laughs> they have lessons mm-hmm. to impart. All her reviewers sort of applauded her for, you know, her moral messages, not recognizing the satire that she's kind of <laughs> laughing in her sleeve, which is fun. But, uh, but I think that's part of it. Of course, you know, as her critical reputation grew, like in the late 19th and the early 20th century, the first, you know, romantic literature courses, she would be the one female author on the course. So there'd be like the big six romantic male poets, there'd be maybe Sir Walter Scott, and then there'd be Jane Austen. <laughs> she's our female writer. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting how even though she wasn't the most popular writer of her day, not even the most popular female writer. Now she, I think she's, would you say she's sort of, when we think of the romantic period, she's the the female writer that first comes to mind, most likely. For sure. Yeah. And she's also, if you're just a reader, you just know the name Jane Austen. I think I was looking at her, at Pride and Prejudice on Goodreads before, just a few minutes ago, and Mm -hmm. it's got over three and a half million ratings. Tens of thousands of people are are just are not only rating the novel, but even more are reading it. So it's uh, I mean, she's still is even maintaining her popularity Mm -hmm. today. Did you get a sense like from those? That's fun. Like, did you get a sense of threads through the reviews? Like, what is it that people love so much about Pride and Prejudice? I'm not sure. Goodreads. It's overwhelmingly positive. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I think it might just be in part due to the. Know, cheerfulness of the uh, the, mm. the whole mood is like rather uplifting. I was yeah, thinking yeah. just before this podcast, like last week, I spoke to Professor Julia Crete about Animal Great. Farm. Yeah, and Great. then this week, uh, which is such a dystopic and such a depressing <laughs> novel. Yay! We're, yeah, we're talking about this one this week, which is like yeah. one of the most enjoyable novels ever. I think agreed. I mean, and yeah. it's just like a complete ricochet from one extreme to another. But I think. Mm that's partly why people enjoy it. So yeah, there's something just, um, I don't know, enchanting about the way Austin writes. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and let's face it. I mean, we, we should and can talk about the satire and that's a link to animal farm, right? Like they're both like classic satiric works. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, let's face it at the end of the day, why do we love pride and prejudice? It's the love story. Maybe. Right. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, cause Lizzie and Darcy and every time we read it, we, we know what's going to happen, but we, you know, we read it again for that wonderful courtship and, you know, um, that partnership and, 
uh, the promise of this very happy, equal uh, marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's such, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to read the book. And it's, it's also um, from the perspective of female authorship, you know, it is kind of a, it, it, it is interesting to read. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, my mind is wandering a little bit, but I'm thinking about how Jane Austen's stories are all courtship narratives. They all end, spoiler alert, <laughs> with the same, you know, the with the marriage, the expected romance resolution. Mm-hmm. But Jane Austen herself, her life didn't follow that pattern, right? She instead does what none of her heroines can do. Um, she supports herself through writing. And I think that's really quite interesting. And again, in a day, in a period when female authors um, had to, you know, were sort of frowned upon. I'm thinking about, I think this is something you and I have chatted about before, but the fact that so many female authors in the period had to publish anonymously or pseudonymously. So Austin, instead of attaching her name to her work, her first published book, Sense and Sensibility, the title page simply says it's by a lady. Um, so, which is kind of interesting. And then subsequent, like Pride and Prejudice, I believe the title page is by the author of Sense and Sensibility. So mm-hmm. sort of resting on benefiting from the success of the previous work. And it's not until the year after her death that her um, identity was revealed, right? That, she, you know, um, there was a biographical notice that her brother um, included in uh, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, which were published together uh, naming her and saying a little bit about her life. So it's, you know, it's, that her success as a writer is is a happy is a part of the happiness of her works. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a sad, uh, tragic fact that she never did publish under her name mm. during her lifetime. Yeah, but she got paid for what she did and enjoyment from it, and then she's got such a powerful legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is the the satire behind Pride and Prejudice for those that that don't know? Well, I think there's a there's a lot there. I mean, the there's certainly satire against um, the upper classes. So Lady Catherine de Bourgh, Carolyn Bingley, and her snobbish attitudes. Um, there is satire against the marriage market. So um, you know, basically throwing into relief the idea that even though this is a romance um, and a very romantic tale. That when it comes to marriage, uh, especially in a certain, like in the social milieu that Jane Austen herself was in, upper middle class, upper classes, that marriage isn't just about two young people falling in love. There's all of those economic considerations. So her Pride and Prejudice in all Austen's novels expose that reality and satirize that, like the mercenary side of marriage. And then also, you know, the, the targets of satire are many. Uh, returning to Collins, I'm thinking about that scene in which he's visiting the Bennets and he insists on reading it out loud to them one evening. And he reads from a book called Fordyce's Sermons for Young Ladies. <laughs> and it's this, you know, tedious, um, moralizing work about how to be a virtuous young lady and so on. And Lydia, of course, is falling asleep because it's so dry. But he, he comes to sort of stand in for those very stuffy, but very conventional ideas about female propriety in Jane Austen's day. So Austen is kind of, by putting those attitudes, uh, having them represented by Collins, this comic figure, she's making fun of those attitudes, of course. Uh, Lizzie is uh, a very independent, smart, sparkling kind of character. And she is not at all, you know, she doesn't sort of fit into that mold of the proper young lady. She's more free-spirited, for one thing. So I think the targets of satire are 
are many in this work. And then just as we were saying before, the satire against narrow-mindedness, right? The And the lack of ability to recognize opinions outside of your own initial views, uh, I think seems to be a, a big idea in the book. Yeah. And I also read that this uh, work is also, well, a lot of Austin's work is a critique on the sentimental novel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, the So she rejects that the wild gothicism, the supernaturalism of the gothic, but she also rejects the sentimenta- sentimentality of, um, you know, novels of sensibility from from earlier in the 18th century. So she, it's it's like the title of her first novel, Sense and Sensibility. Her characters are more about balancing, you know, emotion and reasoned judgment. Um, it's, you know, uh, that's something that all of her characters are sort of working toward throughout the plots of the novel. And there's a feminist message in that too, because um, the feminist Mary Wollstonecraft from this period was also critical of sentimentality in women, right? Over emotionalism and argued that women should develop greater rationality. And you see that theme in that feminist theme, like that romantic feminist theme in Austen's novels too. So that's pretty interesting. But as you say, as a, re- as a rejection of the sentimental novel, there's a greater emphasis on a realism too in her works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I read that a biography by Austen's nephew is part of what brought her back into popularity. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's, I mean, the whole, there's this wonderful um, book that I recommend to any of your listeners who are interested in um, Jane Austen's um, sort of critical reputation and her canonical status and her, her public sort of um, uh, image um, today and how it evolved from her own day. Um, and it's, it's by a scholar called Devoni Lucer. And it's, the title is The Making of Jane Austen. And she starts with, I think, that autobiographical notice by Jane Austen's brother that appears in, uh, at the beginning of Persuasion in Northanger Abbey. So the, the posthumously published, where she's first named and her brother sort of says a few words about her. And then the, um, then you have the biography by the nephew in the Victorian period, right? I think it was the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of creates this image of Jane Austen as being, you know, very quiet, retiring life, very virtuous lady, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then as we move on, her, our ideas of her start to change. We start to see her more in the popular imagination as a satirist, as a social commentator. But anyway, this book by Lucer is a really fascinating uh, look at kind of like the afterlife of Jane Austen's reputation. Yeah, because I read that, yeah, I guess her, her image, but her family tried to kind of cultivate this image of her, a specific mm-hmm. image of her. That's and- right. Also, her sister burned most of the letters that they corresponded with one another because... Oh, Cassandra, what were in those (laughs) letters? (laughs) What if they're found, Tom? Wouldn't that be amazing? Can you imagine if maybe she didn't burn them at all and there's a box somewhere and we find out all these things (laughs) about... Wouldn't that be great? Um, yeah, but yeah, what are in those yeah. letters? It's a lacuna. Like what it's this, you know, we don't know. We've lost so much and that's okay. I mean, that, those are her private letters and it's fodder for imagination, but you're right. Uh, yeah, you're right. This carefully crafted public image and the burning of the letters. So uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, mm-hmm. There are lots of letters remain though, and they're interesting to read. Yeah. Yeah. I think some have speculated that they were burned because I guess Austin would gossip about 
family members or say things that weren't so nice. And they were trying to, you know, create this image that she's such this uh, quiet, nice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Conforming. Yeah, I don't believe it. I'm sure she was, you know, you can tell from her narrators and her novels that she's very satirical and very judgy. I think in a fun way, but, you know, like there's that line in Pride and Prejudice, uh, Mr. Bennett says, you know, why do we, I'm paraphrasing, but why do we live, but to, you know, laugh at our neighbors, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's what she does. She just, you know, she observed others and laughed at their foibles. And I'm sure her letters were full of all sorts of venomous critiques. And so maybe it's for the best that Cassandra <laughs> um, kept them from us. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose this novel also, well, it exploded you know, at the end of the 19th century, like it became very popular. Some critics had even said that it was disproportionate to how good her work actually was. Mm. Like like maybe she, she blew up kind of for, for no really good reason, but she didn't Mm -hmm. explode. It's a perennial question. What is it about Jane Austen, right? Like why? um, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from, again, as I was saying, the way she so cannily negotiated attitudes about female authorship. And she managed to kind of convey the impression that she was writing, as you said, these kind of very conservative, moralizing um, stories. So even the most conservative male reviewers in, you know, were, were approving in the first reviews but she's so self-reflexive about that. Like it's, it's, you know, there's this one point um, I love in, an example of this in Pride and Prejudice where, so of course, uh, Lizzie and Darcy really only come together in the end because of Lydia's elopement. Like that's the catalyst because um, Darcy pays Wickham to marry Lydia, right? So this is this, and this grand gesture is like, instrumental in in helping Lizzie overcome her prejudices and they come together. And there's one point in the novel, which I find so interesting where Austin, where Lizzie, um, Austin has Lizzie say, you know, um, she recognizes this and she says, what will become of the moral of our story? You know, the whole reason, all of our happiness rests on this like transgression of my sister. Like she's run off with this man and it's only because of that. If she hadn't done that, we wouldn't have gotten together basically. So Austin is so aware, so acutely aware that the morals are not so simple, right? She's aware of the morals that she's putting in her stories and she's so maybe, I don't know, why is her work so popular? I think early on, it's because she had the approbation of critics and reviewers and early male university professors who were happy to teach her works, you know, in the early 20th century. And, uh, and now I think it's because we can, you know, again, we can go back to her books over and over again and get something new and see a different angle. And, you know, they're endlessly interpretable, like they're inexhaustible in that sense. Maybe that's why they keep getting reread and adapted because we never finish reading a Jane Austen novel mm-hmm. in a sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also the, well, I guess the explosion of her popularity formed a, a group called Jane Knights. So people yeah. who are like <laughs> in yeah. favor of Jane Austen, <laughs> love Jane Austen. And then mm-hmm. uh, that sparked a lot of uh, literary criticism, like pro mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. anti-Austen. Yeah. Yeah. And there are people all around the world who love to get dressed up in Regency gowns and, and have balls and celebrate her birthday in December and <laughs> have tea. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the fan culture around Jane Austen is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's all the questions I sort of had about Pride and Prejudice. 
This has been really fun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to talk about Jane Austen anytime with you, Tom. (laughs) Yeah. And I just wanted to ask, uh, why do you think it's important? I mean, people can do anything, really anything they want. They can go and watch TV. Why should people read these days and read the classics? Mm. Oh, what a good question. Hmm. I'm biased. I know you're biased too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, okay. First of all, it's the pleasure that literature affords quite simply, um, you know, that power of being transported away um, from your problems, from, you know, this current COVID world we're living in and being able to escape into a different time, maybe a simpler time. I don't know if Jane Austen's age was simpler, but, you know, so, but being able to immerse yourself in a classic story, really dive into the story world. But of course, it's not just an escape. Like when you read a work, as you know, well, it's, a work of literature. It's a reflection, of course, of the world. And I think that reading literature helps us better understand the world. Um, It's a window onto different times in history, different places and perspectives. And, you know, it helps us. And this gets back to the theme of Pride and Prejudice. Reading a work of literature helps us exercise our empathy muscle, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. We we are able to put ourselves in the positions of other people, understand other worldviews, um, imagine, get outside ourselves and see things from a different vantage point. And again, this is the theme of, one of the big themes of Pride and Prejudice. You know, um, there's uh, this, that wonderful scene in the, my favorite scene in the novel is after Lizzie rejects Darcy's first proposal for various reasons, and he leaves, he writes her this long letter. And then shortly thereafter, remember, finds her on a walk, gives her the letter. She's very angry. She reads it once and she's dismissive of all his excuses. And, you know, and then she reads it again and she starts rethinking her. And then she reads it a third time. And it's such a brilliant moment where we see over the course of those pages, her changing her mind about him. And it's such a wonderful scene of reading and rereading and close reading. But it's also what the book is about, you know, learning to get outside of your initial, like we were saying before, your initial judgments and prejudices and getting past your biases. And that's more broadly what all literature does for us, unless we're just reading the same things over and over again, like unless we're just reading things that reaffirm our own beliefs, which we shouldn't do, you know, (laughs) but reading the classics and reading a wide range of literature gives us that broader perspective so we can question our received views and become more liberal, tolerant, informed thinkers, broaden our perspective. So mm-hmm. literature does a lot. Wow. Now, now that you ask, <laughs> I am biased, but I think, I think it serves that function. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. I yeah. agree. Yeah. I mean, not only, I, I mean, of course it's intensely enjoyable. Like that's the kind of what drags you into it, but I really learn the most from reading a great story mm-hmm. just about myself and about yeah. the world. And yeah, yeah, I think that's what mm-hmm. great literature is supposed to do. I agree. And does do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, completely. Anyways, thank you for coming on to speak. This with has you. been really <laughs> fun. Thank you so much, Tom. Anytime. It was awesome. a it was a pleasure. Hope to have you on again in the future. Absolutely. I'd love that. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that wonderful conversation. Professor Natalie Neal's edited collection titled Gothic Mashups is available for pre-order and I will link it in the description of this episode. The essays in it look at gothic mashups and remixes from the 18th century to today, from Showtime's Petty Dreadful and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies to Sherlock Holmes' Dracula pastiches. She's also working on a critical edition for Rutledge 
of a romantic period parody called Rosella by Mary Charlton. It's a work much like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey and E.S. Barrett's The Heroine, both lovely novels, and it will be published in 2023. You can also follow her on Twitter at Dr. N. Neal with two L's. I will also link this in the description where she tweets about her upcoming publications, literature, and her dog, Watson. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend who you think might also enjoy it. You can also give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and follow the YouTube channel where I post videos of myself reading poetry. All of this can be found on my website, ltlpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Take care.